There is this feeling when you climb the scaffold in the morning in Paris. You have the sun rising, you hear the town, and the town is yours because you're in your own world. I mean, nobody has any idea you're up there. And there you are carving a piece that was designed and carved by someone in the 1300s. I could not stay in France. I mean, I was too close to these monuments. It would have been impossible to step away. It's kind of like an addiction. It was too good to carve so freely like that. The, the craftsman can put the love into his work, but there's no doubt about it. And I'm sure a lot of them could be artists. The craftsman can do what you, what you see, but the artist is going to try to do what you can't see. I felt, hmm, it's, uh, it's time to, it's time to fly away. <laughs> Hi, this is Sarah with another episode of Materially Speaking, where artists tell their stories through the materials they choose. Today I'm meeting Emmanuel Fillon, born east of Paris, into the world of stone. Age 15, he trained to renovate historical monuments and began his career as a craftsman. Emmanuel suggested we meet at his studio in Massimo Gallini's, who are known as specialists in reproducing classical sculptures on the edge of Pietra Santa. I tucked my car on the side of the road, nudged up against the railway line which runs from Genoa to Pisa, and approached the large gates. As I wait in the dusty yard with towering piles of marble and statues all around me, a smartly dressed group hover at the far end of the yard. They've probably come to check up on a commission. When I'm jovially waved from the office towards Emmanuel's studio, I find him in crisp white jeans. But his studio speaks of hard work. Small blocks waiting to be bases, a stone floor covered in marble dust, and under each workbench, chunks of marble and wood. Emmanuel shows me some of his figures standing tall on Cavaletti. Then we jump in my car, go back into Pietrasanta, join his daughter, and he makes me some green tea. My name is Emmanuel Fillion. I'm a sculptor. I've been coming to Pietrasanta since 1995. The first time was to look for marble, so actually I ended up in Carrara, I think, like most, most people. You've been drawn to Carrara until I discover Pietra Santa in 97, exactly. At the time I had a studio in the States, and I started to um, get commissions. And one of the commissions, I needed uh, 30 tons of white marble, so I came to Carrara. One thing after the other, I really discovered Pietra Santa, and uh, it's completely different from Carrara. Going there to purchase the marble, I visited all the quarries in Carrara. At the time, I was taken around by Mario Tavarelli. He was a very interesting uh, man. He passed, unfortunately. He had a big company from his father. And uh, what was very interesting, he, he really understood the artist's needs in a way, even though he was a merchant. <laughs> He's the one who um, hosted uh, Irving Stone for writing the book Agony and Ecstasy. So he stayed with him, and so he told me all the stories and how Arvingstone would uh, rent a donkey and go to the chorus to really live what Michelangelo lived. I mean, the whole romanticism of uh, having, uh, you know, a sculptor in Carrara. 
If I arrive in Pietrasanta the first time, Pietrasanta is definitely more romantic and more artist-like than Carrara, coming for a short period of time. But then I saw all the industry, all the possibilities, and uh, I was already quite impressed. And when I saw Pietrasanta, of course, then I was like, oh, okay, this is where you should be, you know. <laughs> so that's why. It's a beautiful town, isn't it? And so if we go back to when you were born, where were you born? I think of you as French-American. Is that how you I'm, identify? I'm French. So I was born French. I mm -hmm. became American on the way by marriage. I was born in the east of Paris in a town, Soissons. I mean, not many people know about it. My family comes from Champagne. I mean, I don't know if I was destined to be a sculptor, but definitely I was born in a stone world. My village, uh, where I lived until I was 13 years old, had a quarry, a limestone quarry. I was surrounded by limestone quarries and had a lot of carvers. You know, at the time, I would see them on their moped going every day. I would see the big trucks with the blocks. So I didn't notice. It's not like uh, when you're a child and you start thinking, oh, I'm, I'm going to do that later on. But it gets natural. You see, you, you, get a, you grow sensibility. Um, I remember playing hide-and-seek with my friends between the blocks, you know, the, the limestone yard, and we would play hide-and-seek. And, seek. and uh, I remember playing with the tools while the guys were away on the weekend. Uh, so definitely when later on, around 15 years old, when I started to think of what I wanted to do, that caught up with me. I really liked that feel, you know, the, the smell of the stone, what you can do with your hands, the freedom. There is also a physical aspect for a boy. I remember I like the um, hard work, you know, head on the stone, like something hard. So that's how I think it kind of grew in me. And then I decided that I wanted to be a sculptor. Were your family artistic? Do you come from a family of artists? I'm going to start with my dad. My dad taught me how to draw. My dad is a great draftsman. He, he can draw. And I remember always... Still now, he never draws, but when he does, he has this very distinctive line, simplistic but clean and pure. So definitely talented for the arts. All my family plays music, but they're all doctors. My mom, who's all my life said, oh, you got the artist fiber from you know your dad's family. Actually, she was mistaken because we uh, come from a long line of artists on her side which she was not aware. A cousin made her realize that. And uh, my grandfather, 14th generation, was uh, the most important painter of the Renaissance in France. Wow. Who's that? Jean Cousin. Oh. Jean Cousin, and he has a painting in uh, Louvre, Eva Prima. And when I heard about it, I was like, hmm. It seems that my life was gathered around some kind of genetic reminiscence. What I mean by that is just my path. When I started sculpting, I traveled through France and I worked on monuments, I worked on churches, I worked on cathedrals, castles, and it was very um, old-fashioned the way we worked with the studio, the sculptor studio. And later on, I did stained glasses, which my grandfather then did. I mean, we're talking about in the 1400s. If I go back, because yes. you asked me, it started in this little village where I got aware of stone and surrounded by limestone. But then at 16, I decided to do a trade school because I went to the Beaux-Arts in France, which is the artistic school. And I realized that they don't teach you how to sculpt or paint there. They teach you how to be an artist. I mean, at the time. I think it changes. It depends on the time. You know, it's kind of fashionable. And I thought, well, I mean, I don't really care to be an artist. I think you're either an artist or you're not. I mean, it's not something you've been taught. 
I think. So I want to learn how to sculpt. And I didn't find anything at that time. So I did a trade school to be a stone carver. And then I learned stone carving in granite. Because at the time we live close to the center of France, you know, where the um, volcanoes. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's very isolated. And I was in a boarding school there for two years where I learned to um, to carve uh, stone. And was granite. it an art boarding school? Or no, was no, it a no. Specialist school uh, it's a <laughs> special trade school. It's a trade school where we went from 14 years old to 26. It's everything in construction, traditional carpentry, metal carpentry, cabinet maker, engineering. We were 1,500 uh, boys in that school. Wow. And there was uh, two sections. One was engraving, you know, for funeral in, in particular, and then one was stone carving. And what's this place called? They called the Métier du Bâtiment uh, at the time. EMB in Feltin. Feltin is a little town next to Aubusson where they make the tapestries. They have a lot of boarding schools there, I think, to dynamize uh, the area at the time. We were almost twice the village. <laughs> so so just to go back, you were 13, 15, that you had to decide? Trade when, school, 16. Do you have siblings? Did you have yes. to leave home? And yes. was that odd for you or exciting for no, you? No, it was great. <laughs> you have a lot of siblings, do you? <laughs> <laughs> no, just have a brother and a sister. But... Um, I'm very independent. I always was very independent. And I guess I, I see it by um, talking to lots of people. I, I always knew what I wanted to do, really. I remember trying to carve a piece of stone with a screwdriver and a hammer, which was not working very well. I remember building things, you know, it's kind of, so it was in me. I mean, I, I, I always love architecture. I love to be in churches. It was kind of mystical. I think my approach to uh, the relationship with stone is mystical because I really related the carvings and the stone, the limestone, especially in France, is used for um, big castle buildings and uh, churches. And I did like to be in these places. I found peace there, you know, and I find peace working the stone. So when, in that trade school, when I uh, left, I had a short experience of being a stone carver, working in some theater in Paris. And I realized that that's not what I wanted to do. <laughs> I wanted to be a sculptor. Eventually ended up to go to a college to be a um, stone carver specialized in restoration of historical monuments. And there we study, it's called the art of cutting stone. And it's a very intricate technique to design, which is called stereotomy. So that's how you, you're being taught. It's a, it's a traditional um, training in a way. In France, they're very good with this. And uh, you travel throughout France in different companies to acquire experience. And then you go back to school. And so it goes back and forth like this. What was it called? Stet? Stereotomy. And what Stereotomy is the art of cutting stone. But what I mean by cutting stone, not with a tool. You, you put it on a paper. For example... Um, you have a lot of intricate shapes, you know, you have arches penetrating with moldings and stuff like that. So you have to be able to draw it in order to make the patterns to cut the stone by hand. And of course, when I'm talking about every moment of learning, I never use an electrical machine. It was all by hand. Yeah. I think it has changed today, but I, at the time when I worked uh, on monuments, we were not allowed to use electrical tools. We needed to use the traditional tools so we will respect the aspect, the Finnish aspect and the style of the monuments. So after that school, 
I worked in Paris and I uh, really was looking for, that's it. I'm like, okay, now I did another school, you know, I got another diploma. <laughs> I want to be a sculptor and I find a sculptor. I find it on a job site. And uh, it's a beautiful story because I was working there and I was really motivated. He was paying very good money to be a carver with experience because we were young, but we had a lot of experience. Uh, I traveled, you know, a lot and knew a lot of different techniques. When um, I saw a sculptor carving a tympanum on the top of a building. What's a tympanum? A tympanum, you know, like this uh, triangular shape on top and, and with, you have all these figures inside with trophies and things like that. And it could be more or less uh, symbolic. And he was carving this because in France, they have a specific technique. The difference between Italy and France as far as restoration for the monuments, I think Italians are very good to conserve the monuments and save them as much in the original state as they can. In France, and I think it's because also most of the monuments are not in marble, but they're mostly in limestone, which is a more easy material to work and probably cheaper. In France, they replace the stone and they carve it as it was before. So it might not be as historically accurate sometimes, but it does give the opportunity to all the tradesmen and the craftsmen to keep that knowledge alive because you really have to learn all the styles and observe and study and draw. I remember before carving, uh, I would sit and spend half a day drawing what I was going to sculpt because I needed to understand where it came from. I need to find the piece that was complete. Most of the time, you know, they were incomplete. So it was kind of a good school to learn. You're reminding me that uh, when Notre Dame burnt down, there was this discussion about, you know, what period do you restore? Because it had what you were talking about, so many layers of... Yes, the, the, the flesh, the, um, I don't know how you call it in English. Yeah, they talked about it. Do we do like a contemporary one or do we restore what, what was restored before by Viollet-le-Duc, which was the architect who restored it in the 19th century? I mean, that's not for me to have that conversation. Do you have an opinion, though? Well, I, I, I definitely think the monument should be restored uh, as close as possible uh, from its original state. Now... Violet Duke's restoration is a fantasy of what it was. It's not very accurate. That's why there is argument about it. But I do think there's so many ugliness in this world. I, I would not want to take the chance to have a contemporary design. We probably won't last time. Because the thing is, we have the crafts, we have the knowledge to build it again. So it lasts another 800 years. I don't think contemporary architecture today is going to last 800 years. I mean, people are in the moment. It does not. Some architects, I believe, build with this in mind, but very, very few. And the material they use won't last that long. So it's not just fashion, it's the materials they're choosing. I think so, yes. I mean, um, the, the wood, the carpentry, you know, the stone, everything is a natural element. They they. They age well, they move together, it's flexible, it's organic. And I think also, uh, you know, there's a change which I hope is beyond fashion with the environmental awareness that we certainly were in last year mm-hmm. uh, before yes. the pandemic. And, and obviously everybody's thinking about that. But, um, you know, preserving materials, reusing materials. Yes. In Paris now, they build new buildings, even, uh, how do you say, social buildings in limestone, back in limestone, because it's economical. I mean, it really, really has a lot of great advantages. To come back to Notre Dame, because you ask, I think I would probably uh, support any project if I knew 
the motivation was not ego-driven or greed-driven, and it was a great idea behind where a lot of uh, young craftsmen you know, could benefit from participating in that project. These cathedrals, I mean, I, I lived in it. I breathed them. I would not consider myself an expert like uh, Christian Jacques or whatever. <laughs> but I think when you look at the cathedral, it's a whole philosophy behind. It's the forest. It's a vessel. It's a cosmic vessel. I mean, the spirituality, the mysticism, the gold numbers used. I mean, this is quite amazing. And there is much more. And I think because also they were taking the time and they were um, transmitting the knowledge, there's much more than just a building. I'm not sure we can do that today because we're in a hurry. We can. We have the knowledge to do, but I don't think we will take the time to do it. Well, I hope you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I diverted you from talking about your yeah, beginnings so I mean, as a sculptor. On, so. on the temponium. So it was Roger Bonnefoy. He was the old school, uh, after war sculptor, you know, working on this is the Monument. person that you were yes. working with. So, yeah. so I, I met him. And every time I had a moment, I would go see him uh, work. He was working really hard and carving directly on the monument, you know, the limestone. He noticed that I was, you know, behind his shoulder. And he turned, I remember he turned one day and he said, um, hey, do you like that? And I said, yeah. I said, when I watch you work, you know, it feels like food that I want to eat, as if you're consuming that stone. So he, he brought the gravels in his hand and he said, why don't you eat it then? <laughs> so then I went back to work, not knowing that the next morning he brought his partner and they asked me to work for them. Great. So I became an apprentice in their And how old were you then? I was 21. Yeah, and they made me a partner one year after. It was a special way of teaching. They drive you up to a monument. They leave you there alone for a couple of weeks. <laughs> they say, we come back. So... After a week doing nothing and going around in circle, I mean, you, you have to get the courage to really go. And, and um, yeah, I've learned a lot like that. And what sort of work was it? Ornaments, a lot of ornaments. They have uh, floral names like cabbage leaf, dog ears, oreille de chien, you know, feuille de choux. It's all these ornaments, small or big, trophies, exotic fruits, garlands. Uh, figures, arms, head, all kind of. So I evaluate from simplistic forms and shapes to more complicated ones. And also it depends on the style and it depends on the year the building was uh, made. You, wow. So for example, I could work in one week. I would go on Monday, work in Chambord for a couple of days, which is a crazy Renaissance style, very particular, and with many sculptors working. So you have to respect the piece you're replacing, which is a unique piece within millions of other pieces in a certain style. So I would work there a couple of days, and then I was called on Notre Dame, for example, go for Notre Dame a couple of days, and then Friday I need to go to the Louvre. So you like cover different style in one week. You have to switch like that. It was a good school. It's kind wow. of like music, you know? If you're a musician, you play rock one day, jazz the other, and classical. <laughs> it's kind of like you're going over You're a the... session musician. Yeah, <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so how many years did you do this? I stayed in the studio for five years. I was 26, 27, and it was great. I love, I love to do it. But I wanted to be an artist. I mean, actually, I think I was an artist. Were you, you doing know? your own creative pieces at oh, home? You, know, I didn't you have, have any time. time. I, I did a few, but no, you, you're consumed by this life. You can't really do anything else. And I love to do it until after five years where I, I felt like, not that I knew everything, far from that, you can always improve and 
And I see it because uh, my friends who stayed and did it, I mean, they have an incredible craft, you know. But I felt, hmm, it's, uh, it's time to... It's time to fly away. (laughs) (laughs) So what was the jump? What did you do when you left them? In between, I met my wife who's my ex-wife now, but I met my wife and uh, she was American. Eventually we decided to, I could not stay in France. I mean, I was too close to these monuments. It would have been impossible to step away. It's kind of like an addiction, you know, like uh, it was too good uh, to carve so freely like that. It was really, really a beautiful thing. I mean, there is this feeling when you climb the the ladder of the scaffold. In the morning in Paris, you know, at seven in the morning, you climb uh, the scaffold, you have the sun rising, you hear the town, and the town is yours because you're in your own world. I mean, nobody has any idea you're up there. And there you are carving a piece that was designed and carved by someone like in the 1300s. I think I needed to step away from that to discover where I really was as an artist. So where in the States did you end up? I went to California. California. So I went to California and I decided to take a break from sculpture. So I started painting. Oh, it didn't last long. Because in between, before I went to California, I met a designer and I did a little project, which I felt the the client was not completely satisfied with. And I thought, man, I'm I'm coming here. I'm going to make it good. You know, I'm going to make it right. That's, That's the right way to start. So I went there. I met with the client and I fixed it. And when I fixed it, um, I met him and he said, hey, Emmanuel, um, why don't you do a sculpture for the middle of our driveway? You know, we have this island. And so I went back to my uh, drawing board with all my monuments in my head, you know, my (laughs) historical luggage. (laughs) I um, made this crazy scene. It's a Neptune scene with a life-size horse, uh, Neptune's in a shell, Nayad and all this. And so it was supposed to be him as Neptune and his wife as Nayad. So I brought the model to him, and uh, and he loved it. He said, oh, my God, I love it. Let's just do it. How much is it going to cost? I said, I don't, I don't know how much it's going to cost. Is that what you got the first step? This is my first project in America, 30 tons of marble. And that's how I, I first carved marble. That is quite a big first project, yes. isn't it? I remember it took me two years to do it. First, I thought it would take me one year. Not that I did wrong with the quality of the work, but I completely lack the experience of the right approach and how to do the models and all this stuff. I was really a novice. I mean, I worked in restoration. I could make a statue, a model. I knew how to do this, the plaster cast. But but we're talking about like a big group, and I, I got impressed. In California, we have the weather that is very dry. So I, I didn't want to use the clay. When I used the clay, I mean, it was impossible to keep. So I... I you couldn't I was, keep it damp all the time, you right. mean? So I, I thought I would take, it would take one year, but after one year, I, I mean, I was way off. So I went back to see the client, and I said, um, I have a problem here. I can't finish in what I said. I, I completely off here, money-wise. So I explained to him. I showed him the mathematics. You know, I said, this is how I counted my prices, and I'm not done. He said, well, Emmanuel, when do you think you're going to be done? I said, I don't know. I was wrong the first time. I'm not going to tell you a second time. Well, he said, okay, you, you keep going, and when you're done, you're done. He kept me paying the installments we agreed upon, so it took me two years. 
Great. Um, yeah, it was great. It was really fantastic. And he actually ended up building a studio for me on his property, and I stay on his property for 10 years. Wow. While I was having another studio down the street. So, yeah, it was really, uh, I made a patron. That That's was really nice, actually, <laughs> isn't it? It's a kind of the old way of doing it. Oh, yeah. Unusual that you'd start with restoring yeah, it, and then actually almost have like a Renaissance experience. You should have seen his face, his facial expression when I told him that I never carved marble before. When, At did, the end. when did you tell him that? At the end. <laughs> so that was my first marble project. Wonderful. So yeah. tell me generally, how would you describe your work? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's figurative, more or less simplified or representation of nature. My background was heavy on me. Because you have so much admiration for great masters and uh, all the work I've been privileged to be so close to. But you got to be yourself. You got to find your own path. I think I'm always searching. I'm very curious. If you, if you are going to think of yourself from within, you think of who you are. Well, you're not really one person. I mean, you many things. So it's kind of the way it is in my head. I'm trying to just express my emotions through my work and my admirations. For example, there's no doubt that my admirations for women is present in my work. And it is probably the most important thing. I admire women. I like to deify them. Women are beautiful. Uh, all women are beautiful. Did you, sorry, did you say deify them? Yes. You're the source of life. You could do without us, probably. We cannot do without you. This is definitely an endless source of inspiration. And I think the way women are treated today and before, but still today, we think of ourselves civilized. It's not good. So um, I create my world. I go in my head and I uh, find this moment of meditation in a way where I work on something that I think is the most beautiful thing at the moment. When I start making a work, a sculpture, I think the first thing that comes to me is a contemplative appreciation of something. For example, I did some work with burnwood. So it's a contemplative fascination with fire and the beauty that it creates afterwards. When it burns down, I mean, it's destruction, but there's something beautiful about it. So all this is tied in with the Japanese philosophy about wabi-sabi, about accepting the beauty in decay and uh, to see beauty even in broken things. Because beauty is not just about the aspect, it's also about the moment and what it represents. For example, we call something wabi-sabi in Japan. If a child breaks a cup, they might not try to glue it so it doesn't show that it's being broken. They might just put gold into the crack which is wabi-sabi, because then you remember that moment when that child broke the cup, which was a dear moment, in a way. So the cup is twice as beautiful. It was beautiful before, it's twice as beautiful because it's been broken by a child, and then you fix it with gold. I may sound like I'm going no. all over the place. No, uh, it is not at all. It's, it sounds like you're honoring the experiences rather than having yes. perfection. I, I believe the viewer or uh, people who will appreciate the work, they will see through. I don't need to explain it. Or I don't need to be so clear with myself. I think I just, it's just that emotion. And I think it's what differentiates the craftsman from the artist. 
The craftsman makes amazing, beautiful things, but they're within restraint of dimensions, deadlines, uh, a cost, because they have to make this thing, which mostly they haven't designed. The craftsman can do what you, what you see, but the artist is going to try to do what you can't see and show it to you with some medium. <laughs> and burnt wood, of course, lasts very long, doesn't it? Shu Sujiban is a technique of wood uh, burning. So they burn the wood, I mean, not totally, of course. Uh, they burn the wood, dip it in water, cool it down really quickly. And once the wood is burned, first it's really hard to catch fire again because it's burned so it has already burned all the um, the fuel the fuel that fills the fire and also the insects don't like to <laughs> to go into burn wood so it's Stay really protective strong. yeah mm. very very strong want to show me anything in particular oh, well, it's a beautiful so catalog tell me about the catalog three themes dancing which was probably the first piece which i made before working for the show how did that come about what, how well there was dance? a commission uh for an homage to martha graham the original piece went to the sculpture garden of the wallace theater in beverly hills so the Allenberg Foundation commissioned me to do this piece, and I think this opened an incredible world to me, the world of dance. I used a few models. They came from the Préjolcage uh, company. It's a dancing company in Aix-en-Provence, and they, they're very, very um, famous. Uh, they do incredible work. They were amazing. That was the most amazing experience I ever had working with models. First of all, there were men and, and women together. They were so comfortable with nudity, and what they could do with their body, like dancing, placements. All I could see was like moving sculptures. You know, like I, I didn't see them as people anymore. It was like moving sculptures around me. I was like, oh my God, I have a lifetime of inspiration here. And when I do, I, I mean, I have a, a whole catalog of shots we did with a photographer because I wanted to stay focused on directing them. I guess that's what I love. It's expression, the corporal expression, you know, like when you possess your body, because we are not our body. We are our soul. You being given this body in a way, then it's what you do with it. You either treat it well or not treat it well. But also if you decide to master that body, I mean, it's amazing what you can do with it. I mean, on many levels. And uh, I, th I thought that was fascinating. And what I liked about the dancing is Martha Graham, she had this very distinctive choreography with fabrics where the bodies were entangled into fabrics. So I like the contemporary kind of aspect of it where the body disappears within the fabric, but you still see the body. So that's what I was inspired by. I did a few sculptures like that. So this is a smaller version. And, and what I did for the show, I did a triptych of this same sculpture. I thought it was very interesting to show the public how a sculpture changes with material. So this is from marble, which is carved, to uh, polished bronze, to natural bronze, uh, patina. So this is part of the same thing also in black marble. This one is polished. Polished bronze, yeah, polished white bronze. 
One was in marble, one was in polished white bronze, and the other one was in bronze as well, but with a regular patina, uh, more traditional. And they're completely different sculptures. I mean, it's the same shape, same same thing, <laughs> same subject, but I think it comes out completely different. And I, But I, in that case, it was interesting because I love all of them. So I'm trying to identify the difference. In what way are they different? Is the well, feeling, the, the, for, feeling yes, different? the feeling. The feeling, for example, I think the white marble—it's so beautiful and fine. There is this purity coming out of it. It's holy in a way. So you're taking to some place where, when you see the polished bronze, it reflects the surroundings. So it lives differently. It's more open to the outside, I guess. It has a, a little bit of a more uh, design effect, I would say. It becomes maybe more of an object, you know. And the traditional bronze, which is the large sculpture that I made for the sculpture garden, is in traditional bronze with a beautiful patina. Uh, I think it becomes more kind of classic, even though it's not classic. Uh, the figure, but I think it's expected, I would say. Yes, yes, more, tra more traditional. Yeah, more traditional. And, yeah, longer lasting. So your themes, you said there were three, thank you. So then, then the other one is... Uh, ah... The green tea, thank you. As I'm talking, I see the dancers. The dancers are all about movements, imply the shapes and all this. And then I did the Kimbaku sculpture, where the women are tied. A lot of people say, oh, it's BDSM and all this. Well, it's not. I mean, it's bondage, but it's not SNM. And it's very interesting because most of the supporters are women. People who appreciate the most are women. And I think it's because, first, probably a lot of men are concerned and cautious about what to say and what to comment about it, even if they fantasize about it. But there is a whole story behind the art of shibari. Or, I mean, shibari is a new word in Western, but we call it kimbaku, which is a heart of tidying. So there is definitely an aesthetic aspect, which draws me the art of searching for the most beautiful thing, the most beautiful way to tie a knot and the most beautiful way to tie a woman or a man. I pick women because I think they're much more beautiful, but it's not limited to uh, women. You're either someone who tie or you're being tied. To me, it represents the power that women have today because all these women are not restrained. They're decided to be there. It's all about the pleasure of being tied and surrender and trust and let go. You have to understand that the art of Kimbaku is being practiced for centuries. They practice for centuries how to tie knots and how to tie people. The Japanese use this art to tie prisoners on the side of the road. You know, when you capture someone, you want to tie them up on the side of the road. So they really develop these techniques to keep you tight <laughs> on the wow. side of the road. So with the Kimbaku, you have this. And it's all about the relationship with the rope, which is made of natural fibers, jute and linen, and it's mixed. And all this rope, it's the way it circulates on your skin. I mean, I've seen women go off like uh, they reach a nirvana. They almost pass out. They live another experience. They go in trance. No, 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 no. Should not be painful. I personally don't get tied up. But do you tie? I'm a very novice. More, I was more out of uh, curiosity, and uh, because I mean, people who tie, it's very serious. It takes years and years and years. You have to learn uh, with the master in a dojo. Uh, you have to practice a lot. I mean, it's not something you do lightly.
queen. African queen. Yes. It's when I started to uh, make all these beautiful carvings in white, Bianco P and Statuario. I remember a lot of my black friends, women, they came to me and said, Emmanuel, why you don't sculpt black women? I said, well, because you guys are not around, really. I mean, I need the model, you know. And I really heard them because I like that idea to not be limited to just one kind or one gender or whatever, one color. And, and I felt like, well, I'm not going to sculpt a black woman in white marble. It kind of doesn't make sense because part of their beauty is their color. I mean, it's not a color, but, you know, it's being black. So I went in a quarry in Belgium. I purchased some beautiful black marble blocks and I was definitely determined to sculpt black woman. So there is my African queen and there is African beauty. Uh, and uh, it's really uh, an homage to them also. And I hope, I hope they're happy. But I think a lot of them, they express their content. They're very beautiful. Yeah, and, and, um, with, and the, the burn wood, actually, the burn wood too. I put a, a, a trunk on the African queen uh, base because uh, I needed the support for the, yeah, for the sculpture. Exactly, but, yeah. but I wanted also to tie in um, the idea that she's standing on burn ground, you know, how Western civilization really took advantage of Africa without giving back. So I wanted to show how beautiful she can be standing there proud on burned ground. Because of my experience in Malibu, when I had my studio, I experienced a few fires. And in the south of France, they have fires too, where I lived. All these are events that happens in your life and eventually you put them together. You know, I, I experienced the fire, I never thought about it at the time, but then walking through the hills and the forest and see how beautiful it is after the fire. I mean, the fire is really a necessity for the forest to rebirth. Of course, we see destruction because we build where we should not probably and or not properly and not uh, being protected. But the forest after a fire it grows twice as beautiful, full of flowers, new trees. I mean, it's fantastic. Some trees can only grow because of the fire, because the, the heat of the fire will help the seed to uh, open and be released. So going back to this idea of double perception of everything, what you see is not necessarily what it is. When you see a fire, like when you see a burn trunk, and you say, oh my God, it's burned. Well, it's life too because the fire brings life. When you see a tied up woman, where well, actually she's not tied in her mind and spirit and soul. She might be tied physically, but she's actually very free to be there and uh, the relationship she has with the person who ties her and the reason she's there. So everything, I think, in my work is also a, a second way of seeing things if you take the time to do. So what happened to you during lockdown? Where were you? How did you work? Mm. We're talking in September 2020, mm -hmm. and none of us really know where we are on this pandemic um, trajectory. Lockdown, I think a lot of artists would say the same thing. They're like, oh, what happened uh, for you with COVID? Well, uh, just the same. I locked myself up in a studio and work. Or I contemplate things, you know, I meditate. So for an artist, I think a lockdown is not much <laughs> at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's just good because we don't need to go out. I mean, we're not allowed to go out and drink and party. So we just focus on work. Um, that was good for that. But yeah, it was not a good experience uh, to see where the United States is going now and the, the amount of tension there. I, I really was affected. Uh, for the first time, I, I felt like, oh boy, I don't want to be there. You know? People are crazy. I mean, everybody, my friend. And I understand. It's... it's, it's uh, 
they're being fed uh, all these negative news all day long. So either uh, on that side or either they're on the other side, they're all crazy. I mean, they all worked up, very disappointed. I think uh, raised, yeah, two type of people, raised people who got all worked up and uh, suffered from that. And there's people that probably uh, realize what is important in life. And definitely being surrounded by the loved ones is important. The thing I miss the most is socializing with my family and my friends. The human interaction is definitely um, one time gets to you. Even though we hermits, you know, like uh, artists, we can be self-sufficient, but you realize that's not it. As much as I love to find my retreat when I go to work and when I carve and when I go model clay and find my space, I think I want to be, yeah, I want to be with people. I mean, we need each other. So thanks to Emmanuel Filion. You can see his work on his Instagram at Filion Sculptures or his website, emmanuelfilion.com. And thanks to you for listening. As with all episodes, you can find photographs of the work discussed on our website, materiallyspeaking.com, or on Instagram. If you're enjoying Materially Speaking, please subscribe to our newsletter on our website so we can send you news and let you know when the next episode goes live. And if you feel moved to leave a rating or review on your favourite podcast platform, we'll be delighted, as that will help people find us. In our next episode, I'll be talking to American-born Jaya Shurig, one of the co-founders of Studio Pescarella in Pietrasanta. It's important to me that my sculptures feel alive. Pulling out the aliveness of the stone, showing the absolute connection that stone has for me with life. There's an inherent tension in life. All the different ways that you get pulled, all the different ways that you navigate through your life. And a lot of my pieces are about that. Listen out for Jaya Shurik, Living Stone. (laughs) 